One of the key things one has to do in, in graduate education and in clinical psychology and allied fields like psychiatry, social work, counseling, psychiatric nursing, and so on, other mental health fields, is, is to imbue individuals who are doing psychotherapy with an understanding that they can be wrong. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Thank you, listeners. Thank you again. This wouldn't be worth doing without you and your uh, encouraging support. So we do um, value any feedback we get. So keep it coming. This is episode 22. Very exciting today. We have Scott Lillianfeld, who um, is a titan in the, in the area of the topic that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, he is the Samuel Candler Dobbs Professor of Psychology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and editor-in-chief of the APS journal Clinical Psychological Science. Scott, would you sort of perhaps pretend that maybe say you're going into school and you're telling a bunch of sort of uh, high schoolers, what it is, what is it that you do on that sort of level? Yeah, it's, uh, it's good to be with you. And it's a great question. It's interesting because up until a couple of years ago, maybe five, five or six years ago, I only had a passing interest in this topic and thought a lot about it, not necessarily all that coherently, but have become <laughs> quite a bit more interested in it. So I think what I tell high schoolers is that in our lab, we're becoming more and more interested in how we, we think about our thinking and the lingo mm-hmm. terms psychologists like to use. We like to throw out a lot of lingo is, is metacognition, so thinking right. about thinking. Right. Uh-huh. And in particular, we're interested in the extent to which people may not just be biased because we're all biased, but also be aware of their own biases because uh, I think we're all biased to some degree. And some of us, though, may have a bit more insight into that bias than others. And and perhaps the extent to which we are aware of our own limitations, our own fallibility, our own biases, mm-hmm. may be a, a very important psychological variable that psychology has often not devoted enough attention to and, and may also be one key component of, of wisdom. So I would just want to jump in right away. And I, I want to ask you, Scott, well, as we're talking about awareness of biases, what do you think is the bias that you think you're most guilty of? Oh, do you have a few hours for this one? I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be a whole podcast series. Too. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know, but I, I, my hunch, and it's just a hunch, is that I'm probably guilty of the same bias that everyone else is, which is, is confirmation bias. So mm-hmm. confirmation bias, the way most psychologists think of it, is it's sort of uh, a double-edged bias. It's kind of this tendency to, to seek out evidence consistent with what we believe and, and what I like to call the three Ds of confirmation bias, to, to in, in turn deny, dismiss, and distort evidence that isn't. And I am sure that, I'm not sure of many things in life, but one thing I'm pretty sure about is that I'm, I fall prey to confirmation bias in one way, shape, or form every every day. I don't know if I've gotten any better <laughs> And compensating for it, I I try every day to to think about it, and I catch myself falling prey to it when right. I can't. Although I, I'm quite sure I also fail to catch myself. So in certain realms, particularly politics and and science and things I, I care deeply about, I'm I'm quite sure that I, at the very least, often like to select seek out information that makes me feel good. And more often than not, what makes me feel good is stuff that comports with my deeply held beliefs. And we will talk more about that in a bit, about sort of the, the role of this for science, but it like almost seems like uh, if I think of a scientist who is uh, not uh, seeking information to support their views, I mean, like, good luck publishing something. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I fully agree. 
Yeah, so, okay, so here's another thing that is kind of interesting, and I'm curious what uh, both you and Charles think about that. Well, you may know that I've looked at some of this kind of biases in the selfers, biases in others that other people have done as well, and often the conclusion is it's easier to observe them in others than in oneself. But how do you point it out to people when you see biases in them? Maybe, uh, Scott, we'll start with you and then with Charles, like, without insulting people, because I often try to do that. Uh, it's very easy for me to see confirmation information bias in uh, my life, but very hard to see it in myself. Right. But if you try to point it out, you gradually <laughs> often yeah. get this aversive reaction. Any yeah. tips there? Uh, no, I'm afraid not. I, I, don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've been any more successful than, than, uh, than you have. And I, I'm sure I'm pretty adept at spotting biases in other people, but not in myself. And that it's a broader phenomenon that Emily Pronin and colleagues have called bias blind spot. And I think it's it's probably a pretty pervasive human tendency. Right. The question you ask is, is how to do it, and and it's an interesting question. I, I wish I had a good answer to it. I would say that I think this is a, a really it's a fascinating question you raise, and I think it's it, it's a remarkably important question that I don't think psychology has really addressed. Is what are the most effective persuasion tactics? What are the most effective ways of of raising these disagreements? raising biases and others in a way that is that actually works. That's right. And I don't think we know a lot about that. I, what I do, but I'm not sure it, it works, is, is not so much to say, gee, you're, you're biased, although I, I will confess I sometimes have, have done that and fallen prey to that error, but <laughs> been very successful. What I try to do is simply ask questions. I, I probably tend to address, and I, I do this in my, in my classes, certainly in my students, and I mm-hmm. try to do it with my friends too, is, is, is I try to adopt a Socratic approach and, and point out potential weaknesses and positions. I try to take an earnest interest in what the other person is saying and, and address them respectfully, but also raise potential counterpoints and questions. And mm-hmm. while doing that, I try to also acknowledge that I might be wrong. And mm-hmm. I often take the approach. There was a very popular show growing up in, in the U.S., I don't know if it's on reruns anymore, but it was one of my favorite shows growing up. Columbo was about a oh, I love Columbo. Columbo. Now you're talking. Yeah. So, um, it makes uh, it warms cockles in my heart. You guys remember Columbo? Just but, one more of thing. Of course. Yeah. yeah, that's how I learned English through Columbo. <laughs> American <laughs> English. Yeah, that learned, explains uh, a few things. I, I learned a Brooklyn accent. Oh boy. <laughs> there was always uh, but, Mrs. Columbo. We never saw Mrs. <laughs> Columbo. Big, big character, right. never on screen. <laughs> to- totally mysterious. We never saw her. That's right. Yeah. But uh, but I, I sort of take a bit of a Colombo approach, which is I'm, I'm I'm not sure I understand this, but I try to do it in, a, in an earnest way, a way that's not passive aggressive. I I just sort of pose questions. I'm I'm wondering about this. I'm not sure. Have you thought about Have you thought about these alternative possibilities? So I try to take a Socratic approach, where I I try in also to take a scientific approach and get the person to try to think about alternative hypotheses. And, and increasingly, uh, my goal is um, not so much to change minds, although that would be nice, but Mm-hmm. I try, and, and there was a wonderful paper uh, on this in, in the magazine Skeptical Inquirer many years ago by by the late Eli Schnur. I try increasingly not so much to change minds, but I think to do what, what he suggests, which is to plant a seed of doubt. I think I it, see, may, yeah. it may in some cases be more fruitful to maybe change one's other people's confidence levels in beliefs and mm-hmm. maybe make them a little bit less certain they were correct than to actually change minds, which for many deeply held beliefs may not 
be a very feasible idea. So I think even if one can make people a bit less sure they're right, a bit less confident in their beliefs, that may itself be a worthy goal. Right. I, I want to get into a topic that you've written quite extensively about, which is this idea of evidence-based practice, which until I started reading your stuff, I kind of thought, I seem, I seem to have misunderstood it because my understanding as a, a non practicing scientists would be that scientists and uh, you know psychologi- clinical psychologists or, or doctors would be basing their decisions about what to do with their patients on the latest science. I kind of th- I just thought that was obvious. <laughs> um, uh, but I-, I was reading one of your articles and you were saying you're stating that sort of 20% of uh, only 20% of people with major depressive sort of um, disorders are receiving optimal treatment, something like two thirds of um, patients with on the autistic spectrum disorder receive scientifically unsupported interventions. So this kind of took me I was really shocked by that. Um, because you think, come on, at least science should be getting this right. Um, so could you just Tell us a little bit, like, what is evidence-based practice and why is it not just sort of obviously embraced by the scientific community across the board? What's, what's this backlash about? Sure, I'd be happy to address that. It's, uh, you raise a lot of interesting, complicated questions, and I'll try to summarize them briefly. And, and you're right, it superficially may be surprising that evidence-based practice hasn't been more widely adopted in, in psychology. I think there's some room for optimism. I think things are getting better, but I also think we have a ways to go. Evidence-based practice, EBP, as it's sometimes called, was something that actually evolved out of medicine, started mm-hmm. largely in, in McMaster University in, in Canada in the early 90s, then spread to the UK, and then and eventually to the US. And, and the idea behind evidence-based, was then called evidence-based medicine, now called evidence-based practice right. when it's in psychology, is that we, we gear our clinical decision-making, that is, what kinds of treatments to use, what kinds of diagnostic methods to use, and so on. We should gear it based on the best available research evidence. But that's not it. There's also, in in most conceptualizations, uh, there are other considerations too. So we we not only use the the best available research evidence, but we use other legs of a so-called three-legged stool. And it's three legs Mm -hmm. because it consists not just of research evidence, which I've spoken about already, but it also consists of of client preferences, client values, what, what what kinds of treatments, for example, do our, our clients or patients want? And also clinical experience, what, what have we found works, which I, I have some misgivings about because there is mixed evidence about how well clinicians can learn from different kinds of experiences. But there's no doubt that sometimes clinical experience can inform treatment. So when we use that three-legged stool, the best available research evidence, uh, client preferences and values in our clinical experience, we are using evidence-based practice. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the backlash against it, and I think there has been some in psychology. In, in some circles, there's been a lot, and there are many, many reasons. I'll try to summarize them briefly. I'll say I think there are two major sets of reasons. The first may be mm-hmm. more principled. The second may be not as, in my view, as, as well supported. The, the more principled objection is that uh, sometimes the science that you, I think, very appropriately referred to, the science of psychotherapy in particular is often not very well developed. There are many, many studies, but oftentimes the, the sample sizes we use aren't very large, uh, and uh, it may be very hard in some cases to, to determine yeah. which treatments actually work better than others. So, it, And I think some of the evidence, and there's some, some recent data suggesting that some of the evidence suggesting that some treatments work much better than others for some conditions may not be quite as good as we thought for some disorders like depression, many, many treatments work uh, fairly well. And that's, that's good news, actually. I think that's very optimistic. On the other hand, it may it may mean that 
some of these evidence-based practice guidelines are things that we should look at, but but not reify or deify. We sure. should maybe take it with a bit of a grain of salt. And I, I agree with that. I think they're, the guidelines are not perfect, but we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And right. I, I still would argue that it is better to use the best available scientific evidence that, that we have now than not use it at all, recognizing that the consensus could change tomorrow. So that's one set of objections. The other set of objections that I, and I would contend, maybe a bit more controversially, is, is not as good, is that I think many practitioners, or at least some practitioners, believe they don't need them, that they can rely just on their own clinical observations, their own clinical experiences to tell them what works. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that if we look at the history of, of medicine, including psychiatry, if we look at the history of, of psychology, other disciplines, what we can discover is that those kinds of informal personal observations often have been wrong, in some cases disastrously wrong. Prefrontal mm-hmm. lobotomy, for example, which was one of the worst mental health disasters of the 20th century, yeah. really emerged largely out of personal observations. People were, sh- were sure that this mm-hmm. procedure, which involves severing the connections between the brain's frontal lobes and, and the underlying so-called limbic system, which is involved in emotion, uh, that that worked, and um, studies later show that no, it didn't work, and in most cases, it seemed to make people much worse. So we have to be, we shouldn't ignore clinical observations, but we have to also have to be very careful about putting too much stock in them because mm. we can often be wrong, sometimes dreadfully wrong, mm. without yeah. using systematic sources of data. It sounds like uh, this is also uh, very much closely connects to this uh, general idea in decision-making research about the neglect of sort of base rate information, which right. is sort of aggre- aggregation of uh, responses across multiple people, also known as possibly scientific evidence, uh, and sort of a preference uh, for personal insights that you uh, base on your clinical practice. I think like uh, Kahneman talked about it, and Michael Ross uh, before that, and social psychology talked about it. So this general tendency to disregard averages at what would happen on average, this kind of realist perspective on the world, when you feel like you have a personal insight into the issue. That's right. And I agree totally. And that's why we need control groups, because control groups give us a sense of of what is typical when we don't use that treatment. And you you mentioned Kahneman and and Ross, and and Nisbet argued much the same thing, too. We're often very influenced by individual cases, right? That's right. We can read, I think I think this has been talked about this, we can read consumer reports and, and hear that this particular car make, like a Toyota Corolla, hardly ever breaks down. And we can hear tens of thousands of cases, but but then we hear one case. Oh, my neighbor told me his Toyota Corolla broke down a week after he bought it. Oh, therefore, I'm not going to buy it. Yeah, throw it all out of the window <laughs> all the time. Okay. That's- and look, I fall. There's, there's. You mentioned what biases do I fall prey to? Do I fall prey to that error too? I'm, I'm <laughs> often very influenced by the power of the individual case, but, but we have to be very careful because uh, th- those kinds of cognitive errors can really lead us to to pick bad treatments and, and conversely also allow us to avoid using good ones. I want to switch uh, gears a tiny bit uh, and talk specifically about one aspect of possibly evidence-based practice, and that is, uh, well, one of my little passions: the measures. And if do we have the good measures to assess the quality of uh, what we are trying to assess? And so one thing that uh, you, Scott, wrote about some of your colleagues is this distinction between the performance measures and self-report measures. And this applies to all sorts of characteristics. Uh, but given that we're talking about the broad ideas related to wisdom, uh, one thing I found particularly fascinating is this distinction between uh, self-report measures of empathy 
and performance measures of empathy. And maybe later we can talk also about the same thing for epistemic humility. Uh, but well, can you tell us a little bit more about this? So it's, in some of your papers, for instance, you write that uh, self-report measures account for only 1% of the variance in behavioral cognitive empathy. So what does that mean? Uh, can we use those? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I have to acknowledge my most of this really comes not from me, but I have to say that it really comes from my, my grad student who's about to get his PhD, uh, Brett, mm-hmm. Brett Murphy. And it was really an interest of Brett, and I kind of hitched along, and I, I learned about this literature along the way. And you're right, we, we and mostly Brett, performed a, a meta-analysis, and, and meta-analysis is a kind of analysis of analyses where you you pull a bunch of studies together and treat them like they're one big study, and there's some challenges with, with doing that that we could talk about. But but by and large, what, what we found, acknowledging that meta-analysis has its limitations, what we found is that self-report measures, as you noted, of cognitive empathy, which is a particular type of empathy, mm-hmm. it's usually thought of as the ability to to put oneself in other people's shoes, to, to understand other people's perspectives, which we'd all agree is a very important psychological attribute. Right. And right. To be almost entirely uncorrelated, maybe a little bit, but almost entirely uncorrelated, unrelated to, to more performance-based measures in, in the laboratory, like the extent to which one can, can guess what someone is thinking by looking at just their eyes alone, for example, or try to infer people's emotions by looking at either static or, or moving mm-hmm. uh, photographs of and so on. So then there are a bunch of these different performance-based measures and, you can slice the pie in lots of different ways, but to make a long story short, and maybe simplifying things here a little bit, it doesn't matter a whole lot. In general, we found that these questionnaire measures where you ask people how how good are you at doing this tend not to relate too highly to these performance-based measures. So what does that mean? Can we still use them? I, I don't know. I think we probably can use them. Uh, I think they're probably valid for assessing people's self-appraisal of how good they are, which is, is maybe yeah. for some purposes. but. I don't think we should necessarily equate them with um, uh, with how good people actually are. The one big question that our analysis doesn't really answer is where does the fault lie? Does it lie mostly with the questionnaire measures? Does it lie mostly with the performance-based measures? Or is there blame to go around on both sides? And, and my, yeah. hunch is, my hunch, but I don't know, is, is that it's both. I think that the Performance-based measures, uh, I think, probably aren't as good as we think because they don't correlate very highly with each other, which is yeah. maybe problematic. And in fairness to, to cognitive empathy researchers, I, I would argue, and, and I will get, I'm sure, disagree- disagreements among some of my psychologist friends about this. I, I would argue that this is not unique to the cognitive empathy literature at all, I think. That, no, I don't think so either, yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, we have, for far too long, and, and the late Seymour Epstein argued this way back in the 70s, and... Uh, I would argue Walter Michelle kind of indirectly argued this in the 60s, too. Lab-based measures tend to have been sort of valorized by psychologists. We kind of put them on a pedestal. We think they're wonderful because we maybe have a bit of insecurity as psychologists. We want to sort of feel like we're physicists and chemists, so we want to want to feel we're doing lab-based stuff like with Bunsen burners. And, yeah, that's right. And, and doing, but um, but uh, and, and we use lab-based measures in our lab, too, but, but I think we have to be careful not to assume they're necessarily better than questionnaire measures, although they may seem more scientific. And in another domain where I know the literature a bit, impulsivity, we see the same exact problem where lab-based measures of impulsivity barely correlate with with each other. And we see the same thing in in a number of other domains. So I think some of the problem probably is with these measures themselves. But I also think some of the problem also lies with with self-reports. We know that 
the data here aren't overwhelming, but there are data suggesting that self-reported cognitive empathy measures are somewhat correlated with narcissism. So oh, yeah. people who think they're good at one thing and people think they're wonderful people and smart and attractive and right, right, right. so on probably also think they're very good at reading other people's emotions and mm. thoughts. So I, I think in part the measures are, are valid <laughs> indicators of personality traits. I, I'm not sure how good they are at picking up on on self-reported on, on actual cognitive empathy skills. I suspect they probably do better than nothing. So I suspect they probably have a bit of signal in them, but they right now probably have too much noise to, to be used by themselves. I, I kind of wanted to bring together two ideas in this next bit. So epistemic humility is something you've written quite a bit about, and you've also written about there are some fundamental problems with uh, clinical psychology education, and these themes are related. So you're suggesting, I, I believe, that epistemic humility is part of the solution to some of the problems in the educa in education in terms of clinical psychology. So there's a lot in that, but maybe we could start by just saying, how do you define epistemic humility? Uh, and then go on to why is it a solution to the problems that you're highlighting in clinical psychology? That's a big question. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> big question. It's a very good set of questions. And um, uh, we have become quite interested in, in our lab and, and also just with my colleagues in what you, you term epistemic humility, sometimes called intellectual humility. Um, right. There, there's some controversy about how to define it, and I'm, I'm not wedded to any one definition. I guess the more circumscribed definition we use in, in our lab is probably similar to that that, that Mark Leary at, at Duke University uses, which mm -hmm. is the extent to which we are we're aware of our own mental weaknesses, our own fallibilities, aware of our own limitations in reasoning, um, aware of our own biases. And, and I guess going along with that, I suppose, is, is the need to get additional information that, mm -hmm. that our, our own knowledge may not always be enough. Obviously, for some cases, in some purposes it is, mm -hmm. but for a lot of problems, we may need to get information outside of ourselves because we are not omniscient. We don't know everything. So that's the way we think of it. Other other researchers define it a bit more broadly, which I which maybe does edge a little bit into, Igor, what you and others have, have talked about mm -hmm. in terms of wisdom. Some people also talk about sort of the need to understand other people's perspectives and then the need to have some awareness that want us to compromise and and some people also talk about an interpersonal component to intellectual humility, the extent to which one is respectful to others. And I'm, I'm not – we don't necessarily focus on that as much in our lab, but, but I think that probably does go along with it a bit. I'm not quite sure where to draw the boundaries here. But mostly we focus on, I think, in our lab and what I've written on in my writing is, is more an awareness of one's own limitations and biases. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, uh, Charles, the uh, question about uh, how this can form – Graduate education. I'm not sure it's the solution, but but we we've, we've argued in in some recent writings that it may be one important part of a solution. And and what we have argued is that one of the key things one has to do in, in graduate education and in, in clinical psychology and allied fields like psychiatry, social work, counseling, psychiatric nursing, and so on, other mental health fields is is to imbue individuals who are doing psychotherapy with an understanding that they can be wrong, that mm -hmm. that they um uh, they they can and should be confident, but the confidence should be earned. And one way of earning that confidence is to be, is to learn to become aware of one's mistakes and to understand that scientific methods, as, as imperfect as they are, as flawed as they are, are our best hope of compensating for for that kind of error. Why would that be particularly a problem? Because that sounds like an important concept in any graduate training program. But you're specifically saying there's concerns with clinical psychology education and this particularly would be helpful to address those concerns. Because what what you described sounds like it would be. You know, for all. Yes, uh, I, I, and I, I would agree with that. I think that 
I would argue that intellectual humility, epistemic humility, is a, a sort of training philosophy that should also be imbued to to medical students and nursing students mm-hmm. and so on. So right. I certainly don't think it's it's necessary um, necessarily limited to clinical psychology. I, I think, and here I am being a bit speculative. I think it might be a bit more pressing in clinical psychology for the following reason. To paint with a very broad brush and, and maybe too broad, I would argue that the training philosophy in much of medicine, at least in, in the U.S., is what has jokingly been called uh, eminence-based medicine instead of evidence-based medicine. <laughs> and by, by, uh, um, by eminence-based medicine, what people have, have meant sort of as a quip is that you sort of learn by authority and you're sort of told mm-hmm. what to do. You're sort of told, here's what works, here's what the studies teach us and, and go do it. And for some purposes in medicine, that may be that may be necessary because there's so many different illnesses or so many treatments to learn that that may be the most efficient way of, of learning. I think it comes with a, a downside, which is that I would argue in, in much of medicine, scientific thinking is often not emphasized enough. And I think oftentimes people in medicine often are not taught as much as they should be mm-hmm. about how scientific knowledge is acquired and the limitations of scientific knowledge. Those are the downsides. The upside, though, is that I think in, in medicine, and I think some survey data suggests this, there's often not as much questioning about evidence. I think there's just an assumption, yeah, you look at the scientific evidence, that's what it shows, do it. And and maybe that isn't always such a bad thing for some purposes because <laughs> I think the, the the level of doubting of evidence-based practice is probably not as, as high as it is in, in medicine as it is in psychology. You know, earlier we, when we were saying that why aren't scientists using, you know, the, the most robust scientific interventions, that sound, sounded like essentially we were asking people to trust authority. And now we're kind of on the other side of it and we're saying, why aren't people like questioning the evidence more? So is there a contradiction there? Um, I think it probably is a bit of a contradiction. I think that it really gets to the heart of a, of a great question, which is to what extent should we put trust in authority? And I don't think there's a simple answer to that other than to say, I think that we should put some trust in authority, particularly if it is earned, but we should also be skeptical. So mm. when, yeah. when there's clear evidence that something works and uh, it's coming from a, a large, well-replicated body of evidence, we should generally probably defer to it, but also keep an open mind and realize that that, Data could be incorrect. So we have to kind of walk what I often call this kind of epistemic tightrope, which is, mm, right. and I, don't, I don't quite know how to walk it always, <laughs> but we have to kind of, on the one hand, look at, at, the, at the consensus data and, and put some degree of trust in it, particularly if it is well conducted. At the same time, not put so much trust in it that we mm. fall hook, line, and sinker into it, and are unwilling to change our minds when the when the evidence suggests it's it's wrong. And this where is to, yeah, I was, where to balance is a very difficult question. I don't think there's a simple answer to it, and I think researchers and practitioners are going to differ in their thresholds. I wanted to pick up on that point about how people and maybe how students in a in a sort of a psychology graduate program how their personalities might uh, be instrumental in how they relate to dealing with evidence and how scientific how, how naturally the sort of scientific method comes to them uh, and this kind of gets at something that you talk about in clinical psychology's dirty little secret so <laughs> i was fascinated by that so can you tell us what is it that people outside graduate education in psychology don't know about some of these factors that are going on pushing people into different kind of camps 
Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, we we coined this term because uh, so <laughs> I call it "dirty little secret." Yeah. and uh, what, what we mean by that, and and some may disagree, but we, we, I would argue it's it's not it's sort of an open secret, and I and that I think people who teach clinical psychology grad students are aware of, which is mm-hmm. that many clinical psychology students, and in and it's not just clinical psychology students. I think it's it's true in many mental health disciplines are not mm-hmm. all that interested in in research. And um, that poses some, some challenges. And I think we often make the mistake of telling students they can't talk about their clinical interests, can't talk about mm-hmm. their interests in doing psychotherapy. And, and we, in turn, they often have to pretend that they're interested in research when they're not. And I think that poses some real challenges for, for graduate education. Mm-hmm. I, I think that my own take on this, and this is just my own view, some of my co-authors might feel differently. My own take on this is that you don't necessarily have to want to become a researcher to be a, a, an effective practitioner. I think the data are pretty clear you don't have to be. And I, I think that's fine. I think if you don't want to, research isn't for everyone. You have to be a bit crazy to want to do psychological research. I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit crazy in right. that way, and I've been doing it. <laughs> but I, I have some very good friends who, who don't love doing it. But you do have to want to, to practice in accord with the best available research evidence, become an effective consumer of scientific research. So that, that I think is the way of cutting that Gordian knot is, is mm-hmm. letting students know, look, if you don't want to do research when you get out, that's okay. But you have to learn to appreciate what scientific methodology is about, learn to, to evaluate scientific research, and also learn to become a lifelong consumer of research. Because right. the research in psychotherapy is always changing. It's very confusing. And you're going to have to develop some skills that, you, that you're also going to hone throughout your career to be able to evaluate research studies in psychotherapy and, and allied areas. Yeah, and so like uh, right piggybacking on that and sort of the general like uh, question, what do we need in science beyond clinical science? Uh, what do we need in science? Uh, you say it's uh, epistemic humility. And I wonder, there are many misconceptions that scientists may have. You actually have written about them. It's one of my favorite articles by you, uh, Scott. It's this little piece about the 50 <laughs> misconceptions that sure. scientists have. So uh, you say that uh, scientists, as well as lay people, uh, have uh, misunderstand sometimes terms. Can you pick uh, maybe one or two uh, most favorite, almost surprising misconceptions uh, that you have observed? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's become a big interest of mine. So, yeah, we've, we've written, we wrote a book on sort of scientific myths and misconceptions. And I've also, as you correctly point out, written a couple of articles on, on widely misused uh, terms. So... I can talk at a couple levels. I, I can first talk about sort of at a meta level, a broad level, people's misconceptions about how science works. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one big area mm-hmm. that that I think is, is important, as I think many of us, myself included, probably hold or have held misconceptions about how science works. I think when I was a student, I thought that science is all about proving things or science was all about absolute truth. Or, right. or and uh, I've come to realize, of course, that that was a remarkably naive idea and, and that science really is is not about that. It's, it's about uh, trying to go about subjecting our beliefs to the threat of falsification, to trying to prove ourselves wrong. Mm. And that scientific knowledge is, is always provisional. Certainly there are some things we can be pretty sure about, but that scientific knowledge is, is rarely, if ever, certain. So I think that's still a very common misconception, a very common misunderstanding of how, how science works. I also think there's a, a widespread misunderstanding that there's a, a simple formula for how to do science, that there's this so-called hypothetical deductive method that we start with a big theory out there, and then we deduce hypotheses from theories, then we test yeah. the, the hypotheses, and if the hypotheses are wrong, we throw the theories out. Well, that's, that's a lot of that's a lot of hogwash. Science doesn't work that way. Science is often very, very messy. And 
we we don't in many cases we probably shouldn't throw out our theories just because of one negative finding because we've learned right. that science including psychology as a whole we can't put too much stock in individual findings and mm -hmm. so th that's one set of misconceptions then in, in the field of psychology you mentioned uh, misconceptions i've been interested in I i've always been struck at the tenacity with which people hold misconceptions so in in psychology for example many people continue to believe that the the that most of us use only 10 percent of our brains which is oh great totally yeah wrong. it's optimistic yeah right exactly. some mornings i feel i'm only 10 percent of yeah. mine but but that's not true although maybe 10 percent of our neurons are firing at any given time perhaps yeah. we know we're all using lots of our brain capacity and, and uh we know that that idea is totally totally false one one that I always find amusing, for reasons I don't have a good handle on, people seem to feel very strongly about this one. In fact, I probably get more uh, emails and, and um, phone calls about this one than any other. This idea that there's a link between the full moon and, and strange behaviors, that there are linkages between the full moon and... Really? Uh, full moon and strange behaviors? Oh, I, okay. get, <laughs> I get this one all the time. Werewolves. <laughs> yeah, werewolves, exactly. People are more likely to act strangely or to, to commit crimes or, or attempt to commit suicide or what have you. The studies consistently disconfirm that link. But when, I, when I've given talks about this, I, I have almost always have people come up to me afterwards and say, no, I know you're wrong about that. I, I, I'm <laughs> and it goes back to what we're talking about earlier in terms of the power of the individual case, because more often than not – yeah. The person will say, oh, well, I know you're wrong because I remember one night there was a full moon and I remember some of my neighbors acting strangely or something along That's those right. lines. So it's uh, – and <laughs> again, people seem very reluctant to give that one up. And, and to me, the, the common theme I think that runs across so many of these myths and misconceptions is that people often rely very heavily on their own experience. Many days it does feel like we're using only 10% of our brains because <laughs> our brains aren't are very efficient. Uh, there may be cases in which we can remember uh, individuals acting strangely during a full moon and so on. So again, people are putting a lot of stock in their individual experience, neglecting the base rates, as you point out, uh, and yeah, neglecting that's a uh, big one. Other, other kinds of data that are relevant. Yeah, it's also, I'm just wondering, you know, like this movie, uh, Lucy came out, the great movie with Scarlett Johansson, Luke Besson as the director, and that the whole premise of the movie was that mm -hmm. people are using 10% of the brain. And, I, and it sounds kind of scientific. I mean, it's also sci-fi, of course, so it's not really scientific, it's pseudo-scientific. I wonder, though, like after people watch this movie, if they start believing it even more, and that, uh, to what extent does Hollywood, to some extent, and uh, sort of just popular culture propagate disbeliefs, even when it's like, we can say 10 times, right, hundreds of articles saying that people are not using 10% of the brain, and then people watch this one movie and start believing it more after this one movie than, than after hundreds of articles written uh, to the opposite of that. Well, well you're right, and I, yeah, the, the, that, that movie did that. I think uh, the movie Inception, I think, also perpetuated that belief, and it's, it's mm. a bit humbling as a psychologist. We, we get very excited if one of our articles has been cited by 100 people. Yeah. You know, that's, that's uh, we call that a citation classic. We get very excited and <laughs> we um, put people up for tenure and promotion if the <laughs> articles have been cited 100 times. Meanwhile, uh, we have movies that are seen by millions of people every day. So it's an uphill battle because uh, we can we can write articles showing that no X isn't true, but more people watch um, a film in, in one evening than all of our articles put together. So it's, it's very, right. very difficult to combat. Does it seem like, you know, you're saying that um, the, the thread that seems to run through some of these biases is overweighting your own personal experience? It kind of, it seems a little bit harsh to have a go at people for overweighting their own experience. Yeah, that kind of seems reasonable as an organism to 
largely mostly lean on your own experience of the world i mean it's obviously not right it's not science but it seems um an understandable sort of meta bias i think it is and i think it i think you raise a great point and I, and I rely on my experience every day too for some things and i think it raises the, the broader point which is that most and maybe all of the kind of biases that psychologists talk about those we talked about today probably are cut from the same cloth as, as basically adaptive thinking and um and I think that's very, very true. I, I think to me, I don't have a simple answer to this, but to me, there's a, a big difference between using one's personal experience and intuitions to kind of gauge whether or not someone we just met is a nice person or whether we like that person or whether mm. this is someone we want to hang out with for a beer. I think that's a totally reasonable thing to do. And I think that for those kinds of purposes, our everyday experience probably works okay, not perfectly, mm. but it probably works well enough for us to get along. But that's a very different very different uh, issue than whether we can use our personal experiences and our intuitions to tell us how the the psychological world world works and how the natural world works. So yeah, it is <laughs> I think it's perfectly fine to say yeah, the world kind of seems flat to me, <laughs> and uh, and on an everyday basis, I get along just fine, assuming the world is is flat. Yeah. Uh, it does seem kind of flat for most purposes, but of course that is a very misleading belief when it comes to actually understanding the, the shape of the world. So yeah. I think we have to make a very clear distinction between what's going to mm-hmm. actually be effective for us in our everyday interactions with others, in which case I think those kinds of experiences probably work well enough to to get along versus actually understanding the the true structure and function of the world, including the three-pound world inside of our heads. I just want to add to that very quickly that uh, maybe it's like one way to think about it is also like, it's not entirely true that the whole world is focusing on individual experiences. I mean, like we we just like carved this, uh, this concept of weird that we sort of in North America and Western Europe, we believe that everybody thinks the same way as we do. But if you have a very particular culture that we have developed here, putting a premium on individuals' experiences and like sort of living on their own and compartmentalizing everything as compared to maybe living in a smaller uh, but tight-knit network of people where you may not necessarily focus just on your own experiences, but also experiences mm-hmm. of people next to you and that will be more attuned to them. Yeah. So maybe that's another important distinction. It's like we overweight maybe individual experiences in part because our culture uh, pays, uh, pays such a, a great premium uh, towards these individual experiences. I think that's right. Um, and I think you're exactly on target when it comes to this uh, notion of so-called weird cultures. And, and we are very weird cultures in, in a lot of ways here in, in the U.S. And it, it also applies maybe to cultures that are somewhat more individualistic in, in um, the U.S. being one of them, where we do place a, a premium on our individual experiences and less on the shared experiences of others. So I would like to actually add and talk a little bit about the flip, so like in science, uh, and let's talk also about individual experience, individual characters now. Okay, so there are some scientists, and uh, Scott, probably you and I know quite a number of those, uh, where uh, you look at them and you think, gee, that's like the opposite of epistemic or any type of humility. The bigger the name, the less humility. And Who so are you talking about, you- Igor? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but there, there num- I mean, I, uh, Charles, I think you and I know a few as, as well. Uh, so I'm just wondering, how can they reconcile this with the claims about the role of humility for science? If it seems like they're this big shot, I, I would say even like among some of the Nobel Prize winners, uh, there were certain examples of absolute lack of epistemic humility, uh, often in the directions uh, uh, besides those that where they received the Nobel Prize for. How can we reconcile those perspectives? 
So I, I don't know any arrogant scientists, actually. I've never met any no, of them. No. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There's the quote for the, uh, the advert for the episode already right there. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I don't know if the bigger the name, the greater the arrogance. I, I don't know. I, I, I will say that it, I am surprised by how low the correlation is at the very least. I, I, mm-hmm. I do know some really prominent psychologists who I would regard as, as quite humble. I'm, I'm hope she wouldn't mind my saying this. I'm, I'm pretty good friends with um, Elizabeth Loftus, who's mm-hmm. uh, yeah. done more work than anyone probably to establish the fallibility of memory. And I, I would say I call Beth my friend, and I think she's um, she's very tough and, and she has strong beliefs, but she's also the first person to admit when she might be wrong about something and very open to other perspectives. I, I would say she's very intellectually humble and she's extremely famous. Uh, there are others, I won't mention their names, who... <laughs> <laughs> who um, are not as humble. And, and um, so it, it's, it, it is a bit surprising. You mentioned Nobel Prize winners. Just as an aside, we have a, a chapter coming out in a, a book edited by, by Bob Sternberg and uh, mm-hmm. Van Halper and others. Uh, the, the, the interim title for it is called uh, Nobelis Gone Wild. Um, <laughs> after Girls Gone Wild, we, we talk about case histories of, of Nobel Prize winners who um, have had, to put it charitably, very strange beliefs, like Carrie Mullis, for example, who co-developed a polymerase chain reaction, who believes that AIDS is not caused by the uh, HIV uh, mm. virus. Um, so there, there are a lot of strange beliefs out there. Like is there supplements also? What was the name of the uh, this Nobel Prize chemist uh, who, until the end of the day, believed that he could cure cancer by just having a hyperopsy number of vitamin supplements? Yeah, uh, you may be thinking of Linus uh, Paul- Pauling. Who yeah, the, Pauling, yeah. The only person to win two unshared Nobel Prizes, brilliant man, and almost discovered, and probably would have discovered the structure of DNA had, had Crick and not, Watson not beaten him to it. That's right. Um, but also remarkably brilliant, but that's right, believe that you could cure cancer, and, and by the way, also schizophrenia by taking uh, oh, yeah. mega doses of vitamin C, and, and continued, and, and it's one thing to have a, a sort of weird belief, uh, many of us do, but he, he refused to, to give it up. He himself, yeah. The data suggested he was almost certainly wrong. So is there an incompatibility between the fact that scientists, sometimes very effective ones, can be pig-headed and, and arrogant and, and the fact that epistemic humility is an important part of science? I don't know. It's something I struggle with. I don't think I have a good answer to it. I'll give you my best mm-hmm. guess. It may not be a very good one. I think, the, to me, the, um, the answer is that there may, there may be a kind of middle ground here. There may be a mm-hmm. bit of kind of Goldilocks zone where to be a good scientist, yes, you have to be epistemically humble or, well, I shouldn't say you have to be, but it may help to be epistemically humble as a good scientist. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, you may also have to have a certain amount of chutzpah and a certain amount of, mm-hmm. uh, certain amount of confidence right. to pursue your beliefs. We, one thing we inter- interest us in our lab, but I don't know the answer is whether too much epistemic humility might not be problematic. And it mm-hmm. might be, maybe if you're, if you're too humble, that might get you in, in trouble. That's one possibility is that you, mm-hmm. you, you maybe again have to kind of have two different hats. On the one hand, you kind of have to be humble, admit you uh, admit you might be wrong, but by the same token, be willing to push your ideas mm-hmm. um, kind of far. That's one, that's one possibility. The other possibility is what I just said is, is not correct. And that maybe to be a good scientist, you don't have to be epistemically humble, but that maybe what does work is that the scientific community is in checks, yeah. And that, yeah, yeah. that maybe the better way of thinking about it, which is probably closer to maybe my perspective, is is not so much that scientists themselves are epistemically humble, although I wish they were, but that more science itself is a prescription for intellectual mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That what we call the scientific, we loosely call the scientific method, although I'd argue there's no single scientific method, but but what scientific methods really are are tools that force us to be epistemically humble in our labs 
and that will ensure a, a greater epistemic humility for the field as a whole. Because in reality, as Carl Sagan, uh, the astronomer, said, is science is kind of a little voice in our heads saying, you might be wrong. So that when we do screw up, which we all do as scientists, I have too, right. the scientific community will inevitably push back against us to make sure that we are corrected. Um, and it doesn't always work perfectly, but it does better than than, um, than anything else we've discovered as um, as a human race. So, uh, so that's maybe closer to my way of thinking is that scientists themselves may not always be intellectually humble, although it might be an ideal to pursue, but that science itself really is – the, the closest approximation to epistemic humility as a guiding philosophy that we have yet discovered. That's, yeah, and to yeah. some of our listeners, we don't put this on a science on the pedestal. We just see it as one reasonable uh, strategy. That, that's that's re- I was just going to say that parallels with the conversation we've had before when we had a philosopher guest on and uh, we were talking about how intellectually humble are philosophers. And it was, again, it was this level of, yeah, what level are you looking at the intellectual humility of? Like, if you have arrogant philosophers going at each other from different positions, you know, you've built yourself a system which is, even, even though it's adversarial, mm-hmm. At that second level up, it creates a humble group. Um, so that's kind of what you're talking about in, in the scientific yeah. field. Yeah, and that's, I like that way of thinking about it too, is that it's um, in this idea in the sort of marketplace idea of ideas. Yeah. It may actually be a good idea for scientists to be somewhat forceful and to push their ideas hard and, and allow the, the truth or something sure. close to the truth to kind of win out. There is um, – not to get too technical, but there is an interesting debate in philosophy of science uh, about confirmation bias, a concept we talked about earlier. One, mm-hmm. one model is that confirmation bias is a, is a just a bad thing. We should always avoid it. And, right. Uh, that's one possibility. The other possibility, though, is that at least in the early stages of theory testing, a bit of confirmation bias may not always be a bad thing because, mm. after all, as we've learned from the replication problems in psychology, we don't want to nor should we give up our, our pet theories after one or two failed studies. And it may actually be healthy to kind of have a bit of um, a bit of confidence in our beliefs because that forces us to maybe subject our theories to tests beyond the point where we might ordinarily do so. Because every once in a while, some ideas that seem implausible may turn out to be right. The danger, though, I think comes, and this is where I think confirmation bias does get to be a problem, as with the Linus Palmick example, is when people simply are unwilling to surrender their beliefs, even That's when right. the data are quite conclusive. That, I think, is something we could all agree scientists have to avoid. I do have my final question now. Um, so you, you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned um, about uh, if someone was doing a TED talk and they were like, hey, this is my big idea, but I'm quite uncertain about it. And people would perhaps get up and walk out halfway through because people like to follow confident leaders and, and perhaps no more so uh, than in politics. So just the final kind of broad question is confident leaders uh, seem to be successful in the, po- the political space. So what would it like an intellectually humble political leader look like? <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I, I, I can't possibly see the relevance of intellectual humility to American politics these days. I'll tell you, I'll tell you <laughs> I'm being, being a bit, bit sarcastic. I, I think that when I, I don't have a simple answer to that. I'm not a historian, but when I, when I think of intellectually humble leaders in our country, I think of arguably our greatest president, Abraham Lincoln. And, I think he's someone. Interestingly, we have not published this. It's it's uh, it's a little. It's rather preliminary. We have some initial data on estimating intellectual humility among the U.S. presidents. All oh, right. Using some some items uh, from historians, and it, it's subject, I think, to to a lot of criticism. Uh, the, the methodology we use, but we we had historians rate the, the presidents. Uh, we should say we, but it was mostly done by some other people. We were lucky enough to get access to this data set, but we and and they had had the 
people rate the U.S. presence on a large variety of personality terms, and we had some raters determine which ones were most relevant to intellectual humility. And interestingly, Lincoln seemed to score the highest on hmm. on intellectual humility among the U.S. presidents. Take that for what it's worth. But I, I would estimate that he was a very intellectually humble person. But by the same token, he was also very confident. And I think that, to me, a intellectually humble leader is someone who is – is aware of their own limitations, aware of their own fallibilities, but at the same time is also confident because mm. – the, the, but it's an earned confidence. When, when you have thought about your beliefs very deeply, when you've subjected them to searching scrutiny over and over and over again, you now actually can be somewhat more confident that you're right. You may not be sure you're right. right. You may always have that little doubt in your head. I might be wrong about this. But by the same token, you have a, a earned confidence rather than an unearned confidence mm. because your confidence is, is coming not from boastfulness, not from uh, grandiosity, not from narcissistic traits, but it's coming from the fact that you have spent years or decades thinking about these issues very deeply and you now have earned the right to be confident about them. So Abe Lincoln, I would argue, was very intellectually humble, but by the same token, he was also very sure that he was right about some things, namely that slavery was a, a terrible moral sin, and he was even willing to go to war, a very divisive war at that time, of course, in the U.S., mm. in order to stop it. And I think ultimately mm -hmm. a war that, of course, turned out to be um, a, uh, a very tragic but also very wise uh, step in our country's development. So to me, that's really what an intellectually humble leader is, someone who is, who is intellectually is aware of their own weaknesses, is aware they might be wrong, but by the same token is also confident and, and able to speak with a very strong voice that has come from from years or decades of searching self-scrutiny of their own beliefs. So it's sort of like uh, having accuracy in your confidence. So if you don't know enough about a topic, you know that you shouldn't be confident in that. But if you do know a lot about a topic, you, you shouldn't pretend you don't or doubt it too much. You need to sort of have an accurate assessment of your own confidence in the particular domain. That's right. I believe it was, um, and you, uh, you folks may know more about this than I do, but uh, being experts in, in wisdom, but my, my recollection is that David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, said that the wise man, I would say the wise person, tends to calibrate their beliefs, proportion their beliefs to the strength of the evidence. And yeah. that, I think, is what a, a wise person does, and it's also something that an intellectually humble person right. uh, believes, too. They, they can believe some things very strongly, yeah. so they're not necessarily diffident, they're not necessarily lacking in self-confidence, but their self-confidence is well calibrated with their, their justified true belief, to use Plato's terms. That is a great answer, because that gives me, that gives me confidence, there you go, that you, you, intellectual humility can have a place in, in politics, because sometimes you can get a sense that it can't, but you can, you know, it doesn't preclude confidence by any stretch, so that's, that's a really interesting insight. No, that's that. Let's 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 hope that's uh, an insight that will uh, have uh, at least some influence on on U.S. politics in the coming years and decades. Yeah, we'll see what happens in the next few years. Yeah. Scott, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Uh, we learned so much about both the clinical practice and uh, what evidence-based practice means in the first place, as well as uh, the role of epistemic humility for clinical education and for science in general. Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it, and um, hopefully we can all continue to talk about these important topics. Thanks, Scott. And here's the summary of today's episode. We talked about the role of doubt and epistemic humility for science and clinical practice. Like most people, scientists and clinicians in training are subject to confirmation bias, often throwing scientific insights out of the window when personal anecdotes come to one's mind. For instance, regardless of general evaluation of the qualities of a particular car you want to buy by thousands of people, you may become less inclined to do so if your neighbor tells you he did not like it. 
We talked about how this is especially dangerous for evidence-based practice in clinical psychology, which suffers from dogmatic, not very intellectually humble, adherence to a particular school of thought for devising treatment, as well as for small samples in clinical research. Finally, we talked about the tightrope between humility and communication of scientific insights on the one hand and humility and confidence on the other hand, finishing with the evaluation of one of America's greatest presidents, Abraham Lincoln. And that's all for today. Thank you for listening to the Wisdom Podcast.